It's 6.09am, January 18, 1977, Mount Victoria train station in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney. The New South Wales 46-class locomotive, number 4620, hauling eight passenger carriages, leaves the station with commuters on their way to work in the city, a 126-kilometre journey. Along the way, it will pick up and set down passengers. After stopping at Parramatta, it had a non-stop run to Strathfield, then onwards to Sydney. However, minutes out of Parramatta, a combination of factors would cause Australia's worst ever train accident. This is the story of the Granville train disaster. Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. Most of the articles I'll be reading from today were from Radio 2SM Sydney, ABC News and the Canberra Times. Also, a great shout-out to Barry Gobi for the interview at the end of the podcast. News to Car 2. Go ahead. Steve, could you head out to Granville? We've got a report of a train derailed. We don't know much about it yet. If you could head out there straight away. OK, heading out there now. I'll call in once I get close. Yes, Glenn. I'm on the air from home, mate. Do you storm me to go out to Granville? Yes, if you could. It looks like it's a big one. Uh, rescue squads are on the way. They're calling for oxygen. Apparently there's quite a few people injured. Apparently a, a bridge has fallen on the train. It's gone off the tracks. Uh, it's fallen onto a carriage, something to that effect. Um, so if you could head out there straight away. Steve's already on his way. OK. So that's radio station 2SM calling their reporters minutes after reports of a train crash at Granville. Now, this is January 1977 in Sydney. It's the middle of summer. The 6.09am express service train from Mount Victoria to Sydney, it was an important and popular train. It would get commuters into the city at 8.32am for them to start work at 9am It's a two-hour and 20-minute journey. The train was operated by the then Public Transport Commission of New South Wales and consisted of one New South Wales 46-class locomotive and eight timber-bodied steel underframed cars. Now, the state-run railways were in a bit of a shambles at the time and budget cuts over the years had meant that the trains were often dirty and not maintained properly. Track maintenance also suffered, as well as the oversight of the bridges that would pass the train lines or driven over by the trains themselves. However, the 609 service passed through many marginal electoral seats and so it was given quite a priority over many other services. This train would be threaded through the lines to get almost a clear run once it got to Parramatta. But if it were to be only a few minutes late, other suburban trains would end up in front of it on the shared line and could cause the express service to be up to 30 minutes late. As this was the case... The express service was allowed to run 10 kilometres an hour faster 
than other services in certain areas. So just after leaving Parramatta Station with 469 passengers on board, the New South Wales 46-class locomotive number 4620, hauling eight passenger carriages, leaves the station and goes towards Granville Station at approximately 8.10am. This bend is in a deep cutting below street level and just before the Granville Station, the train has to pass under what some say is a 470-tonne Bold Street Bridge. As it turns the left-hand bend, the engine derails. It tips onto its right-hand side and hits the central supports of the Bold Street Bridge, damaging one of the staunchions carrying the overhead power lines as well. As the engine continues... It pulls the first carriage through, but the damaged staunchion completely rips through the carriage, taking off the complete roof, killing eight people instantly. The second carriage continues past the bridge as well. The third and fourth carriage stop under the bridge, with the rest of the carriages following. In the bewilderment that followed... The passengers on these carriages were unaware of what had happened other than there had been a lot of noise and jerking around of the carriages. Then 10 seconds after the train had come to a stop, the unimaginable happened. There was a loud cracking noise and the 470-tonne Bold Street Bridge collapsed onto carriage 3 and 4. The weight of the concrete bridge coming down onto the wooden carriages completely crushes them. Um, there's been a bit of a problem at Granville uh, Station. Lloyd, what, what's the problem here? Well, uh, what we know so far is that a rail bridge, a train bridge at Granville has collapsed. We believe three people have been hurt. Uh, the police rescue squad are on the way. That's all we know at the moment. It's one of those days, huh? Meantime, extensive delays. At, uh... One eyewitness, Keith McGowan, who was on the last carriage, told news reporters, I always sat in the last carriage because for a reason I cannot explain. I've had an image of a train crash and the last two carriages being still on the tracks, but the rest of the train wrecked, he said. But that morning, he opted for the second last carriage instead. The last carriage was for smokers and he was riding with a friend, Marcia Marchini, and she detested the smell of smoke. We went through Parramatta and came through the swing into the Granville area and the train gently stopped. Three distinct soft stops. McGowan peered from the carriage and saw the overpass had fallen. I jumped off the train and I remember looking down and seeing the wheels were off the track, he said. He scrambled across multiple sets of tracks up an embankment and through a corrugated iron fence to a nearby employment office to phone his wife and tell her what had happened and that he was okay. Only then did he realise the extent of the disaster. I crossed the road and went to the front of the train and looked down and there I couldn't believe what I saw. The locomotive on its side, the carriages split open, 
people everywhere. Then I walked back to the employment office and rang John Laws, who was on air at 2UW at the time. I thought it was just the carriage under the bridge at first, but then I had a look on the other side of the bridge. The locomotive's on its side and one carriage. All you can see is the floor of it. It's on its side. It's had the top ripped off it and others have jackknifed into it. Immediately, locals tried to help and within minutes, rescuers were on their way. First news reports were starting to filter from the scene. An overhead road bridge has collapsed on an interurban train in Sydney's western suburbs and as many as 200 people could be trapped. The Public Transport Commission said a short while ago the locomotive and one carriage is on its side and another two carriages are trapped under the wreckage of the bridge. The accident occurred on the Bold Street overpass at Granville and involved the nine minutes past six train from Mount Victoria in the Blue Mountains. Gas is escaping from ruptured mains and electrical power lines have been brought down. Some injured have already been taken to Parramatta Hospital. All available police and ambulance personnel are on the scene. More details as they come to hand. They were confronted by not only the devastation of the collapsed bridge that had crushed two of the train carriages and had sheared the roof off another, but there were scores of dazed, shocked and bleeding passengers stumbling from the wreckage, oblivious to the 1,500-volt power lines that were strewn across the scene. She always gets that train. Who's that? Jenny. Your and, daughter? Yes, and she hasn't arrived at work. I can't go down there. It's everywhere. I thought it was just the carriage under the bridge at first, but then I had a look on the other side of the bridge. The locomotive's on its side, and one carriage, all you can see is the floor of it. It's on its side. It's had the top ripped off it. The, the others have jackknifed into it. It's just The location of the wreckage, being in a deep cutting, hindered initial access until ladders, then stairs, could be erected. The first responders realised there may still be some people alive in the crushed carriages and they quickly inserted an airline from an air compressor into the carriage via cracks in the collapsed concrete slabs in a bid to maintain the oxygen supply. Firemen detected there was a gas leak from one of the gas pipelines that ran through the area. Additionally, there were gas bottles that supplied heating to the train that were stored in the carriages year-round that were likely to be damaged and leaking. Ambulances were now arriving and the surrounding streets were filled with the noise of sirens which hardly drowned out the screams and moans of the trapped passengers and the noise of the rescue work. All surrounding hospitals, Parramatta, Lidcombe, Bankstown and Auburn were placed on full emergency standby. Police were now escorting heavy mobile cranes to the site in an attempt to lift the slabs off the carriages. Initially, the police rescue squad used chainsaws to cut away roof sections in a bid to release those trapped on either side of the collapsed bridge.
the wreckage was not stable and still shifting at this early stage. But the brave rescuers refused to leave the scene and continued working and assisting those that they could reach that were still alive. The nearby Granville Rail Yard was used as a marshalling area for 20 ambulances with teams of white overall doctors and nurses waiting with dozens of stretchers, field emergency kits, blood and oxygen. Surgeons at this stage were crawling into the wreckage to perform amputations to free trapped passengers. Prospect County Council electricians isolated the power from the overhead power lines. A refrigerated van from the Red Cross Blood Service was dispatched to the scene with extra supplies. Around two hours after the initial accident, seven heavy cranes were now in place, ready to try to lift the concrete slabs off the crushed carriages. Police were standing on the mobile cranes in an attempt to provide extra ballast to counter the weight of the slabs. Firemen were spraying the area with water to reduce the risk of an explosion from the leaking gas and all the sparks from the rescue equipment. Now this was a full-on emergency with multiple agencies cooperating in all aspects of the rescue. Around 11am, the cars that had been travelling on the bridge at the time of the collapse were being lifted by the cranes back onto the road to help lighten the load before they could attempt to lift the slabs clear. By midday, there were 50 passengers being treated in six western suburbs hospitals. In one of the carriages, rescuers were able to locate six people still alive that were in a 24-inch gap. One rescuer said, We've been able to talk to them and have been able to touch some of them. As if by miracle, there is a 24-inch gap between the concrete slab and the floor of the carriages. The steel cross-members of the bridge are stopping the slab going right through the carriage floors. The majority of the injured are lying in the aisle of one carriage. At the end of a second car, there is a young boy and girl, Christopher and Deborah. Deborah is in high spirits, but there are a lot of difficulties at this time getting them out. We can also see at least 10 bodies underneath. At this stage, people from everywhere are listening in to constant radio broadcasts of the massive rescue. Many are rushing to Red Cross blood transfusion services in the city to donate blood. The New South Wales Premier, Mr Rann, attended the site immediately, as well as the Minister for Transport, Mr Cox, and he said, I just felt sick to be quite honest. The Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser announced that he was prepared to provide Australian Defence Force personnel to assist in the rescue. An Army Kiowa helicopter used a nearby yard 
as an emergency landing area during the relief operation. A Roman Catholic priest, Father Michael Campion, reported to the Canberra Times that he saw at least five passengers still alive in the wreckage of one of the carriages, but dozens of others who appeared to be dead. Father Campion said, The people sitting on the left-hand side of the train had some chance of survival, but those on the right are all dead. Many of the bodies were twisted and the interior of one carriage was soaked in blood. Father Campion described the scene as unbelievable. He added, There's just nothing anyone can do for the victims at the moment. The right side of the train is crushed into tiny pieces. Some of the injured I was able to see were crying for help. It's horrible. They had no chance. While this was going on, according to a report also from the Canberra Times, a thief had ransacked the cars of the rescue workers at the Granville train crash site, unaware they had been digging for the body of a close relative. The man asked the newspaper today to help him return the stolen goods. He said he had decided to give them back after learning also that he had taken a wallet belonging to a Salvation Army welfare officer who had helped him for years. In a telephone talk with a reporter, the man sobbed and said, I've done a terrible, heartless thing. I took a transistor radio and a wallet from a car. Then later I realised it belonged to one of the kindest men I've ever met. When I learnt a close relative was killed in the train smash and realised I had robbed the men who recovered the body, I was sick with shame. The man, father of six and unemployed since October, said the temptation to ransack unlocked cars on the disaster site had been too strong. The Salvation Army worker said today, He had found his stolen belongings squeezed into the letterbox at his home this morning. Fucking fuck's sake. So, let's get back to the rescue. Still, there are people trapped and still alive in the wreckage. Reports were also coming from those that had survived. This again from the Canberra Times. Mr Bill Linney, 28, said he had just walked clear of the section hit by the bridge when the accident happened. Without warning, the roof came down and knocked me to the floor, he said. When I looked back, the carriage was crushed flat. It was like looking at the end of a wall. Mr Linney, a technical officer, got out without a scratch. I don't believe in luck. I believe that God had his hand on me. I was so close to being crushed. Mr Ray Livett, manager of a building society at Granville, said, He heard a loud bang and went outside to have a look. I could not believe my eyes. People from the first carriage were absolutely covered in blood. It looked as if buckets had been tipped over them. Some were wandering around like zombies but what got me was the eerie silence after the explosion. John Stewart, 16, said, I'd just come out of the toilet at the rear of the carriage 
when there was a sound like thunder. Then I saw a wall of bricks and concrete crash through the roof about a metre in front of me. I ran out of the back of the carriage and must have just staggered around on the rails. I must have been stunned. All I remember is a lot of people running from the station and a few people screaming inside the train. John of Blacktown caught the train for for the first time today. He was travelling to Sydney to collect a jacket he'd left in a restaurant. I must be the luckiest person in the world today. He said he'd help free six bodies from the carriage in which he'd been travelling. There were three old people and three young girls. They were all dead, he said. I'm just going to go home, go to sleep and try to forget all about it. I'm very tired. A station attendant at Granville Railway Station, Mr John Whitebread, 19, said, It came round the bend in the track and tipped over. There was a tremendous bang and then a lot of dust and smoke. The first carriage of the train made it through underneath the bridge before it collapsed. But the three other carriages were squashed underneath the bridge. Mr Jack Hoare, who lives opposite the bridge, said, I was hosing out the bird cages on the front veranda when there was a terrific bang. Two local butchers rang to the, ran to the bridge, saw one car was just balancing and tied a rope to it so that people could get out. As I watched, I saw that most of the passengers were stunned and it took them a while to realise what had happened. They eventually climbed down out of the carriages. Mr Roger Whitehead, a senior court reporter for the Sydney Morning Herald, said the train was normally made up of six carriages. It's usually very crowded because it stops at all stations from Mount Victoria to Penrith and then picks up more passengers at Parramatta, he said. So, the rescue is still underway with the last of the known that were still alive, still trapped in the wreckage. With gas still leaking into the carriages, oxyacetylene cutting equipment could not be used. The stifling heat in the cramped rescue areas was worsened by emergency lighting that had been put in place. Seven passengers suffered from crush syndrome, where toxins are released into the body quickly once freed and three of them died from it. Many lessons would be learnt on how to treat crushed persons after the Granville Rail disaster. The surrounding area was covered in stretches and ambulance sirens would be heard each time someone had been freed and transported to hospital. Still, they were not able to lift the huge concrete slabs. By 6.15pm, the last living person was freed from the wreckage. The situation now is that we've got one person to remove, one life person. He's been very brave and we think we're going to save his life. He's just down there. And this big crane is going to uh, hopefully lift the girder off him and we can get him away. Beyond that, I'm afraid, everybody is dead. So that last living person was 32-year-old Brian Gordon, who later dies in hospital. And at this point, the rescue turned into an operation to free the dead. The bridge has been completely flattened. 
all of the live persons have now been removed, or the ones we think are alive, we're pretty sure we know that we're alive, and uh, the problem now is we've got to get the concrete off the carriage and uh, have a look under and see what else we can find. Right, how many bodies are down there, do you know? Oh, I couldn't estimate. I wouldn't be able to estimate, but there's a lot, believe me. Right, what are the working conditions for the rescue squad guys down there like? Well, we've got porter gas leaking from the train, which is leaking up, which prohibits the use of power soaring equipment. Uh, it's hot and it stinks and uh, it's just, you know, nothing much you can say about it. It's just not the best working conditions at all. It's dirty, but uh, we'll get there. At 9.10pm, the cranes were finally able to start lifting the huge concrete slabs up and out of the way. Once lifted, the true devastation of the tragedy is revealed. Mangled bodies and blood mixed in with the shattered remains of the carriage. Still, rescue crews worked non-stop through the night and into the next day. It took 31 hours for the final victim to be removed from the crushed carriages at 3pm Wednesday the 19th of January. The operation lasted from 8.12am Tuesday until 6am Thursday. The final death toll was 83 people with 213 injured. So, what happened to cause Australia's worst rail disaster? Well, as in every major disaster, there will be an inquiry. Problem is, with this one, it would not be open and fair. There would be pressure from the top of state parliament to suppress key items that contributed to the accident. In the aftermath, Coroner Tom Weir was appointed by New South Wales Government to look into the accident. The inquiry found the primary cause of the crash was the poor fastening of the track on the bend a consequence of inadequate maintenance. The report stated that this caused the tracks to spread and resulted in the left front wheel leaving the rail, triggering the catastrophic derailment. The thing is that the author of revisiting the Granville train disaster of 1977, Barry Gobi, says different. Barry was the first ambulance officer on the scene that day and has been investigating the case for the last 10 years or so. Barry believes that the front wheels of the 46 series locomotive that was pulling pulling the carriages that day were worn way out of serviceable specification, and that it was this factor that was covered up by the government so as to limit the amount of compensation that would be paid out. Barry says... Rail workers had spotted a fault in one of the wheels on electric locomotive number 4620 a staggering six months before the January 18 crash. Crucially and fatally, rail maintenance workers had no spare sets to replace the dangerously worn down leading wheel, he said. Instead of taking the locomotive out of action while it was fixed, It was kept in service. By the time it ran off the track, they'd let it run for another 50,000 kilometres. Weir's report, that's the coroner report, 
Weir's report from the inquest briefly mentioned the suspect leading wheel on the locomotive, but Barry says the coroner was threatened that his career was at stake unless he stayed silent. At the time, Weir was being bullied by Chief Stipendiary Magistrate Murray Farquhar and other powerful figures in the shadows. Barry says, I have a handwritten letter from Tom Weir that says how he was being harassed by Murray Farquhar. He released as much information as he possibly could without losing his job. But in the end, he did lose his job. They demoted him, put him in a back room, but they kept his wages the same so he wouldn't say anything. Now, Murray Farquhar was a special kind of fucker. He would finally get done for trying to pervert the course of justice and sent to jail for pressuring a subordinate magistrate to dismiss charges in another high-profile case in 1977. But let's hear from Barry now. Hi Barry, welcome to True Crime Island. Firstly, can you tell me how you became involved on the day? Uh, well, it started at uh, virtually 8 o'clock in the morning at the start of shift. I was an ambulance officer, or as what they call paramedics uh, these days, but uh, I eventually ended up as an intensive care paramedic in, the, in future years to come. But on that morning, we were getting ready to do our daily work, and we had our engines uh, warming up to uh, start our, uh, our normal runs, uh, going to hospital, picking people up and all that. Uh, when then came the call, and... Um, uh, basically we got called to a uh, bridge on top of a train and um, got the address and I was about to take off and uh, the boss came running out he said don't go uh, don't go uh, too silly uh, you know getting there uh, take your time because it's uh, it's probably a hoax so uh, I didn't listen to that because the opportunity to put the red light and siren on back in those days was uh um, I was up and running and I was there within uh, a couple of minutes being out of uh, Auburn Airman Station and uh, straight up a couple of turns left and right and then uh, basically I was there at the, had a look and um, knew the scene rather well or knew the area rather well so I actually drove down to a gate and drove onto the railway tracks on the, um, the Auburn side which is the, uh, basically the south side and uh, my partner and I, the old boys, we uh, both got out and uh, basically grabbed a handful of band-aids. That's about all we had sort of thing in those days. Didn't have much more, uh, uh, some band-aids, oxyviber and things like that. And uh, we worked our way across all up and over and under all the electric wires that were down. Um, my partner said, what are, you know, do you think they're alive? I thought, well, no, they should have uh, tripped a circuit by now. And um, he was uh, a motor mechanic by trade, and I was an electrical engineer by trade. So uh, I knew quite well that um, if they were touching the ground like they were, they should have been sparking if they were alive. So we treated them as alive, and we um, we uh, we jumped over them and went underneath them all the way across to the other side of the um, of the railway line. I went through the back of carriage four, and I said to him, "You go and do what you you can, and I'll go this way." So I went through the back of carriage four and uh, out the other side and then went underneath the bridge and basically um, that's where I spent most of the day. Well, you were one of the first responders. 
Can you describe the scene? Well, it was rather uh, uh, chaotic, I suppose, in some senses, but uh, I was there so early that, uh, uh, you know, as you say, there were people sort of still walking, getting off the train and getting out of different carriages that they could and making their way, you know, in every direction. There were some other people. I think the um, uh, the guy um, that was in charge of the signal box, was, which was very close at hand, he'd come down to have a look and see what he could do. And uh, I thought I think I passed him in the... Uh, uh, basically, we were the only two... Um, official people there uh, under the bridge at that time and uh, uh, for quite some time and um, basically it took a little while before uh, other um, services and my own service, the ambulance service really responded because I think they were waiting for me to confirm it because they thought it was a hoax call. In your book, you found new evidence in the inquiry that was suppressed. Can you elaborate a little for me? Well, that's correct. When they when they came to make a movie, which was uh, eventually came out about 1988, I think it was, which was the day of the Roses movie, they talked about corruption, conspiracy, and uh, cover ups and things like that. And uh, I watched the movie and I thought, yeah, it was pretty realistic. Um, you know, I think they got most of it all right. Um, and uh, because the the movie was actually made in a Westfield car park up in Queensland, so they did rather a good job. Um, but um, when I uh, I started to look at the evidence, I found out that the movie was pretty 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 close to uh, being um, spot on. And some of the reasons why they had their information correct in the movie was because um, most of the people were still alive at that time that were telling their stories. And when I come to write the book, some of those people had actually passed away. So I I only had some of the um, stories that were in the movie to go on as well plus i had the uh, i was given the uh the script um i met the uh producers and script writers of the day of the roses and i was given all their information as well which started the ball rolling in in a, a an inquiry direction you might say um i put out a i was asked to put out a book i never got involved for 30 years and for the 35th anniversary um Someone asked me, would I, would I write a book? Uh, or could we write a book? And nobody really wanted to. So I said, well, I'll have a go at it. I'm a little bit illiterate, but I'll have a go at it. So I wrote the book, 35 Years of Memories, and I only had nine months to put it together. And, of course, it was a terrible book put out, but uh, it had all the facts and all the reports in it. And what happened was a reader got hold of it by the name of um, uh, Vaughan Williamson. And uh, he was a bit of a train buff and... Uh, uh, turned out he's a technical engineer as well, and he had a lot of re- interest in, in in rail. And um, he noticed that the the figures that I had actually put in the book from the report uh, didn't make sense. So we teamed together, and I did the story sort of. And he looked at the technical side of it, and we we went through it all and we researched it, and we found out what the cover up was that the movie had been talking about back in 1988. Um, you know, and that was. Uh, how the government actually um, sort of ran for cover, you might say, and uh, did a lot of cover-ups and uh, hit a lot of the truths. The new Labor government had just come to power at this time, replacing the very corrupt Askin Liberal government that oversaw the running down of the Public Transport Commission. Why do you think they tried to cover up up the real cause? 
Well, I mean, it, it was it, if if the truth was known back then, um, it probably would have bankrupted the state government. So the state government really couldn't come out and say, "Look, we we knew we had a problem, and uh, we didn't do anything about it." We, um, in fact, the, the the his words there, I think um, Neville Rand said, was. Uh, uh, the state of the rail, I forget his actual wording, you, you've probably got it there somewhere. Um, but uh, he said it was in a, such a dilemma and all that, and he had to, there was a lot of work had to be done on it. But he only came into office, I think he came into office about that March, I think it was. And, of course, the next January was uh, was the disaster. So he basically only had about 10 months in, you know, in sitting in the seat. So they've got to give him a bit of leeway that, uh, you know, it wasn't up to him to... Uh, you know, completely correct the rail system. But uh, when one government does something, another government takes over, that government takes the responsibility. And, of course, rail was the big responsibility. It was That's what they said. It was. Uh, he said it was a shambles or something. Ramshackle. Uh, Ramshackle, that's it. Yeah, Ramshackle, you got that. And, uh, yeah, so he... Um, but um, what had, you know, what had, what had really happened was that they, they did the inquiry... And one of the big things when the inquiry took place was that the Public Transport Commission uh, was allowed to run their own inquiry. Um, they didn't have to report to anybody except Judge Thornton, who was in charge of the inquiry. Uh, he was the overall um, magistrate in charge of it all. And he was... Um, uh, so the PTC, Public Transport Commission, ran their own inquiry and, and didn't tell anybody else and, and didn't give any information to anybody else and then presented their case to Judge Staunton. The problem that lie ahead was the coroner had to do an inquiry as well, and the PTC wouldn't talk to him and wouldn't give him any of the information. So he had to get his own engineer, which was Boris Osmond, and Boris Osmond was a man well ahead of his time, and uh, Boris Osmond uh, went through the whole inquiry, and um, he found out there was quite a few problems and he touched on what we call the um, the L6 wheel um, or the R6 wheel. Um, that, um, I'm having a little bit of a um, uh, little bit of a uh, memory lapse here at the moment. But it, it, it was it was the wheel the wheel was um, under under measurements when they found out, and uh, when they sort of brought that to light, they. They sort of um, were sort of said, no, no, that's not right. So they, uh, the, the story, when um, Judge, uh, when Tom Weir, who was the coroner, presented his case, he was actually stood over, and there was a lot of pressure exerted on him, and the pressure was to to finish the inqu- the inquiry as quick as possible and come out with a a favourable uh, a favourable ruling um, in 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 the government's favour. Uh, and not the people's favour. So um, I have a letter, um, you know, that's uh, written by Tom Weir, who's t- uh, who talks about, and it's also I also uh, uh, put it in the book as well, uh, word for word, where uh, he is pressured by a bloke by the name of uh, Murray Farquhar, mm. who was sent to um, sent to jail for perverting the course of justice in later years. But back then, he was actually perverting the course of justice during the Granville train disaster as well and trying to cover up and trying to uh, um, lead the inquiry into a, a direction where it would favour uh, favour the government. And, of course, his boss was Neville Rand, so he was uh, 
it was we, we can only surmise that Neville Ram was saying, look, you know, get this quietened down and out of the way as quick as possible. So the inquiry, uh, the inquiry went on, and uh, Tom Ware mentioned the wheel in in passing in his inquiry in his uh, final report, which was only three type pages. Um, that was the whole the coroner's report, three typewriter pages, uh, which doesn't even fill a page in my book. Um, so that was the full coroner's report. And, of course, Tom Weir was never, ever, I believe he was never, ever aware of what the uh, Public Transport um, Commission had actually found during their inquiry because they, did, they diverted all the uh, problems to the rail and the track and the wear of the track and the sleepers, and they said that the uh, the tracks moved and the uh, wheel, the left-hand wheel, fell inside and all that. But what we've come up with and what we what we've uh, been able to talk to different people, and some of them are now deceased, um, was that um, this wheel was um, beyond uh, beyond lathing because they lathe the wheels every so often, and then when they get down to a certain percentage or a certain measurement. They no longer become, uh, you know, um, serviceable. They can't, re- yeah, they can't refresh them anymore. So they virtually condemn them. But a bloke by the name of Shirley was brought into rail uh, to clean rail up back in those years. So he brought him out from uh, uh, from England. He came in and he decided he'd clean up the railway and he ordered it, basically ordered it all spare parts and everything that's lying around be scrapped. Uh, and um, we get the money for it and uh, we'll put it back into rail. But what he did, he scrapped all these spare wheels for what the locomotive was called, the 46-class locomotives. He scrapped all those wheels, so when it came to change the wheels, there was no spare wheels for the 46-class. Therefore, they said, oh, well, uh, we can't change it, we can't take it offline, and uh, we'll just keep it running and we'll um, keep it under... um, under surveillance was the word that they actually use. Um, during the inquiries as well, uh, when Judge Staunton did ask a few questions, he asked, was the was the wheels measured and uh, true and correct? And they sort of, uh, they said yes, and uh, and then they said no. So they actually lied, uh, lied during the inquiry to hide this particular wheel. But what we, what we our belief is that... Uh, uh, when it came to a particular point, which was called the lead 73, just before the bridge, the actual worn wheel was trying to, uh, wasn't able to actually stay on the track. And when it came to this little crossover point, she actually mounted up and, and she steered right because uh, you've, got, uh, you've got two uh, railway wheels on a fixed axle. One's big and one's small, even though it's any, you know, might be in 16th or an eighth of an inch difference. Uh, it's a big thing when you're looking at those wheels, and of course you've got one wheel turning, wanting to um, turn to the, you know, making, wanting to go right all the time because the the wheel on the right hand side was uh, smaller than the one on the left, and we uh, we believe she climbed the track then, and of course everyone says, oh, how can you say that, and uh, how can you blame that, and how do you know that? Well, the point is that we know that several people uh, have come to me over the years and told me that it was a defected train. And many of them approached management and said that train should not be on the track um, because of that wheel. Um, But they persisted and kept it on the track. And of course, uh, 
if that would have got out um, uh, under under the Work Cover Act, this Work Cover was back in in 1977, um, they knew they had a problem and they didn't fix it. So therefore, they were 100% liable for running a defected train. This service was allowed to go faster than a normal train to try and keep on time. Uh, I wasn't allowed to go faster. It had to stay within the speed limits. and uh, But uh, timing was the big thing of uh, back in those days, apparently, and it had to run on time because uh, otherwise, if it, if it, if it didn't make its timing and it'd get held up and then everybody getting to work would be late. So it was um, a very much a timing thing that it had to run on time. So if it was running you know, running a bit slow, it, it had to sort of make up a bit of time. The, um, I, have, I do have one report that uh, the train coming down from, uh, by the time it got to Parramatta where it pulled in, um, some girls actually got off. They were horrified, and they 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 they, they were, apparently they went to uh, uh, the early opener hotel and got a scotch because they were so so upset with the the run and the you know that the, the you know the train was so rickety and shaky. Um, they they were pretty worried, and they got off at Parramatta. That was one particular story. Um, the train approaching Granville uh, was uh, well. The next stop would have probably been Strathfield. So he uh, he was, had a continuous run from Parramatta to Stratfield. So he was just building up speed, and he would have built up speed. I don't know what they get up to, but I know uh, uh, I've had some uh, drivers talk to me, and they said they, they, they can really move along that particular train, and they could do 140 clicks uh, without any problems. But uh, he was winding the train up, and he got to... Uh, the bend was rated at 80 kilometres, and he uh, we found his... Um, um, I forget the name of the box, the black box that they have in these trains. Uh, we found um, in the archives, we actually found the recorder, um, and it states that he was only doing 78. So he actually didn't even get up to the recommended speed bend, uh, bend speed, you know. So he was under speed. So he got, he, they had to, they, they were questioning him about that. Um, I mean, he had death threats and everything, the driver. And uh, they eventually, um, uh, they cleared him over that particular uh, uh, graph uh, paper that showed he was only doing 78. So with the wheel set that had been machined past its serviceable tolerance, plus the condition of the track, were these two factors the main cause of the crash? Sure, yeah, yeah, of course. And uh, um, I mean, that... uh, that, that that train, you know, and and possibly you know a train later on could have done exactly the same thing, um, but um, uh, as far as the track goes, they they, they did blame the uh, they blame the um, uh, the gangers or whatever they call the uh, the railway guys that uh, walked the track. They blamed them. They never ever rescinded that. They left the blame with them mm. that they didn't check the track properly, and. Um, they, also, they blamed the track, the wear, and the, all sorts of things. They blamed the whole stack of things, but they, they steered right away from this uh, this wheel. But we, we you know, the, the reports that we've had from various people that, you know, it was a defected train. And the other thing was that the railway, all the railway workers were gagged. And only last week I found out a particular guy was in conversation, uh, tells me that um, uh, he actually signed a... Um, a document that stated uh, that he wasn't allowed to talk about it. So, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lot were told not to say anything, otherwise their job was going to be uh, 
uh, up for grabs and uh, also um, those that were in on a bit more high power, I suppose, we made uh, made Sana a, a document to uh, state the, um, uh, what would you call it, confidentiality yeah. uh, document. Non-disclosure, yeah. Not, yeah, non-disclosure and all that, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so it was kept quiet and even, even up until a couple of years ago, no one had seen anything and... I mean, I know um, there was a there was two two uh, two drivers actually on board, relief drivers on board back in the far carriage, and and of course uh, uh, they couldn't tell me anything, and they still don't tell me anything because they still work with one still works for rail, and of course I've had to had to find out, and I've mentioned a few things to him, and he sort of just gives a bit of a nod, but he doesn't say anything. <laughs> uh. Now the design of the bridge had a central support and it was reportedly built too low, so the height difference was made up by pouring tonnes of extra concrete on top to bring it up to the level of the road. What can you say about that? Yeah, what, what they did, the Department of Main Roads built the, built the road from on both sides of, uh, of the track, um, and of course the railway apparently built the bridge. And um, back in those days when they built the bridge, and they found out that the road, the road was uh, 30 centimetres higher than the bridge. So allegedly they filled it up with concrete. And, of course, the bridge was supposed to weigh about 120 tonne and ended up weighing uh, 320 tonne. How prepared were emergency services and how were people compensated at the time and into the future? Um, yeah, we, 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 we were actually, um, we were organised, believe it or not. We'd, yeah. we'd only done a, um, a, simulated, uh, a simulated disaster about four weeks previous just down the road in Silverwater. Okay. So, we, so we, we did have a disaster plan. There was a disaster plan that was put in action, but the biggest problem was that uh, most of our disasters are sort of in open land and no one ever... Uh, you know, no one could ever think that you know you're going to have a bridge that you can't move off 83 people. You know that, that was a big thing. It was, uh, you know, there, there was no. Um, I think there was only one crane that was big enough, and that was down in Wollongong, and it would have had to come up. At, uh, it only travelled at about two kilometres an hour, so it would have took days to get up to Sydney. Yeah. So. Uh, uh, but now, you, you, if you look around, you'll see that there's a lot of big cranes around now that if it did happen again, we've got cranes that can actually virtually lift 300 and ton, you know? So um, yeah. it'll be a different thing. But the big thing that's happened since writing the book and uh, speaking to the people involved and the people that lost loved ones was that um, they weren't taken care of. Um, I've spoke to only two people that got something like 270000 which was the biggest payouts, uh, ever back in those days, because you've got to look at the the rate of pay was about sixty dollars a week. Yeah. Uh, they about two hundred and forty or two hundred. I think one got two hundred and seventy thousand, another one got two hundred and forty thousand, but a lot of them got nothing. And there seemed to be a figure of ten thousand dollars, take it or leave it. Yeah. And uh, unless people fought it, and and uh, like people that are um, people that weren't even injured got got good money as well. But, you know, they, they stood there and they, they fought for their money. But the people that lost people were, were grieving and just wanted it all to go away. And, you know, and basically the, the government stood over and knocked on the door, said, sign here. Uh, I'll give you 10000 If you don't sign, you probably won't get, any, you only, you won't get anything for about 10 years. And, and you'll only get the 10000 when you when you sign off in 10 years' time. 
So basically, people were forced into signing for this $10,000 payout. And of course, uh, uh, one family lost two children and um, their grandparents as well, you know. So the, the grandparents of the children um, uh, were out from England and they took the two children on the train where the four of them were killed. And of course, the ashes of the parents had to go back to England and there wasn't enough money to even send the ashes back. So, you know, people are lost, lost loved ones, got nothing. Yeah, it's awful, isn't it? Yeah. So that's uh, that's where my sort of uh, PTSD comes into because I've never suffered with that until I started to talk to these people. And um, and recently I've just had another guy come forward about, oh, about four or five weeks ago and he's sitting down and he's just crying uh, to me telling his story because he hasn't said anything for 40 years. And um, not only did he lose his father... But he was actually working on the side as a rescuer, and they kept him working there for 24 hours, digging his own father out. Mm. You know, so uh, <laughs> this guy's got a real problem, and he's only just come out of the woodwork. Yeah, anyway, well, I hope you put it all together, son, and uh, you know. No probs, Barry. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll I'll send you a link too, so you can have a listen. Okay, mate. No problems. Okay, have a good night. Bye, Okay, bye, bye. Well, there you go. Many thanks to Barry for giving me his time to do the interview today. So, basically, government austerity and cost-cutting of maintenance cost so many lives that hot summer's day in 1977. Remi- reminds me of the 80-odd people that died in the Grenfell Tower disaster. Cost-cutting kills people. Austerity is a buzzword bandied around by politicians trying to describe their policies using some kind of Orwellian newspeak. In the Granville Granville train disaster, cost-cutting saw all the spare parts sold off for scrap and faulty, unsafe trains kept in service so as not to upset customers that lived in marginal seats. This train was unsafe at least six months before it ran off the tracks, but nothing was done. They just hoped nothing would happen. The bridge it crashed into was way overweight and badly designed. It was just a matter of time before it collapsed. It just happened to be on this day that it did. Then the cover-up that followed so not as to pay out sufficient compensation to all those involved. When you see the rescue workers and all those people that were on the scene that day, it makes you sick to think that cost-cutting fuck-knuckles were the real reason behind the disaster, and as what happened here will happen in the future. The pricks that are ultimately responsible for this disaster will get away with murder. Now, each year, 83 roses are thrown off the bridge on the anniversary of the disaster, and 83 candles are lit. This year, 2017, there was 84, for the unborn child of a pregnant mother that was killed in the tragedy. So, I tweeted today that you should get some tissues handy tonight. Well, you better go get them. I want to play a piece from Radio 2SM.
If there's been any extra compassion in the coverage we've been giving the Granville disaster, it's been because all of us here at 2SM have been waiting in fear of a personal loss. When I started to work here in May last year, one of the first people I came to know and like was a girl called Jill. She was tall, slim, very pretty, and with a quiet and gentle nature, the sort of shy person who never got uptight but was always friendly and helpful. Seven months ago, Jill married a young man named John Clayton, and they moved into a home at Woodford in the Blue Mountains. It was from there yesterday morning that Jill set out and caught the train which had left Mount Victoria at 6.09. Two fellow workers usually join her on that train, but yesterday one was on holidays and the other had come down earlier. All day and night long, our reporters on the scene tried to find her. But by nightfall, her name had not turned up on any of the lists of injured, and all her husband's inquiries and ours convinced us, even if we did cling to last hopes, that she was one of those caught in the horrible toll. Now the casualty list shows that Jill Clayton is dead, and all of us here are stricken by it. That is so sad. But it's just one of the many sad stories that came out of the tragedy. I hope you don't mind if I spend the next few minutes reading out the names of those that perished that day. Eric Ball, Henry Bent, Stephen Black, Anthony Brennan, Alda Brown, Margaret Brown, Kathy Kane, Mary Carr, Lynette Carter, Geoffrey Charlton, Jill Clayton, Amanda Clements, Ross Clements, Philip Coburn, Peter Cormack, Halwyn Cranfield, Peter Cullen, Michael Downer, Margaret Dunn, Carl Dykeman, Christopher Ellum, James Fisher, Suzanne Fripp, Alan Fulton, William Gremmel, Brian Gordon, Diane Gosden, Beryl Halverson, Rodney Henderson, Cheryl Hutchinson, Graham Johnson, Stephen Jones, John Jones, Karen Keane, Brian Knight, Maria Chrysiston, Angela Larkin, Rosemary Leach, Christopher Lopez, Michael Lyons, Kenneth Mays, Caroline Marnie, Deborah Metcalf, Marjorie Miles, Walter Miles, Teresa Zabmincerelli, Leslie Mitchell, William Morris, Campbell Morris, Gladys Murphy, Darcy Murphy, Ariet Nagar, Christopher Parsons, David Pearson, Josephine Pearson, Bruce Pedersen, Jan Post, Jill Powell, Lynette Pryor, John Quayle, Elvie Radford, Vivian Radnedge, Marie Ricketts, Louise Sharp, Amir Saman, Donald Simpson, Esther Smith, Julia Solemn, Robert Solemn, Kevin Spicer, Margaret Spinks, Graham Stewart, Linda Stiles, Robert Salter, Robert Tarrant, John Vivers, Milton Walker, Suzanne Walker, Elizabeth Ward, Rosemary Ward, David Watts, Francis Williams, Teeny Williams.
Okay, True Crime Islanders, that's about it for this episode. But before I go, I'll just have to go through a few items as I do each week. So, for Patreon supporters, I'd like to thank you very much as another month has gone by and I'd like to shout out to all the new supporters to the island. A big shout out to Carol from Cold Case Notes from the Goober State Queen, Mike Brown from Pleasing Terrors Podcast, Dahlia Dennington, Lynn Shirley and Karen Seifka who gave a generous PayPal donation. I really appreciate this and as I said last week, it looks like the domain and hosting costs will be covered. So, if you want to support the island financially, there is a Patreon link to the island's website, www.truecrimeisland.com. And if you want to do a PayPal donation, my PayPal is cambo at truecrimeisland.com. Now, don't forget the easiest way to support the island is to spread the word and tell friends or family about how and where to listen in. My website has links to iTunes, Stitcher, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And soon it'll be on Google Play. And thanks to Sean Gerd for that. You can download or stream directly from the episode link on the website as well. And don't forget to message me if you need anything. Okay, now, following is a promo for Court Junkie podcast by Gillian. Now, if you haven't heard this, this, give it a go. Gillian will help shine the light on the injustices of the judicial system, delve into court documents, attend trials, and interview those close to the case. Also, I'm squeezing in one for Sarah at the Salty Canadian Podcast because her email was sitting in my spam box last week until I rescued it. Very sorry there. Okie dokie. So, we know what goes on now. I'm your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And don't forget to delete your browser history. Imagine being accused of a horrible crime that you know you didn't commit. That's in episode one. Imagine your child's killer is still on the loose, but the authorities keep saying they don't suspect foul play. That's in episode four. Or imagine that you've spent 17 years in prison only to then be fully exonerated due to advances in science. That's episode 10. My name is Jillian, and my podcast is Court Junkie, where I cover criminal trials and court cases and conduct interviews with those close to the case. Check out Court Junkie, available now, everywhere you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Sarah, the host of the Salty Canadian Podcast. If you want a podcast with rants, reviews, and just having fun, and this is the podcast for you. I can be found on Facebook, Twitter, at SaltyCanadian17, Instagram, the Salty Canadian. My show can be found on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Castbox, YouTube, and Google Play Music. Hopefully you will join me. Have a great day, eh?